Well, this morning, I just wanted to take a little break. Uh, we have Ken, Ken Needham coming at the end of the month, and we also have um, next week, we're having a um, missions update on our missions trip. And so Sam and Panita will be back, and uh, we'll be sharing a little bit about the trip um, that we went on to Thailand and India, and a lot of things to share about that. But um, for the next several weeks, we're going to be taking... Um, kind of a, a shot at this series called The Five Solas of the Reformation. And um, last year, you remember, after the first year, we started a little series called Make Your Mark. We cover some basic things. And uh, I've never taught on these before. I've taught on the scriptures that surround these. But um, I just wanted to uh, use it as a foundation as we start the new year, just as a reminder of what our church is all about. Uh, just a, a couple verses, you, you have the uh, um, references there, but we'll be looking at those in a little bit. But um, the one thing that I think that we can ask ourselves as a church is what kind of church is this? What do we stand for? Um, we could say, well, we're 69 years old as a church, we're non denominational. We have various ministries, support various missionaries. Um, we've had several pastors. I think, if I count right, I'm the 12th pastor here since uh, Grace Bible's inception in 1948. Um, I, I found this, some of you may have read this before, but it's uh, 40 years. And... Uh, Bill Stone, who actually owned the house that we live in today, wrote this little poem called 40 Years. And this was on the 40-year anniversary of Grace Bible Church. And it says this, "'Twas forty years ago today that we started on our way to become in word and deed a present help in time of need. Although in numbers we're not great, I trust in faithfulness we rate." And on to Jesus, give our all, and answer when we hear him call. He poureth out from heaven above the, fulfill, the fullness of his grace and love. He knows our need and freely gives the strength we need to help us live. And on May 9, 1948, Grace Bible Church was started with 53 members. And uh, it's an interesting history, if you ever want to look at that little booklet. It has a lot of information in there on how they got this property by faith and how they uh, built the fellowship hall first and then uh, the education wing and then in 1970, I think it was, uh, this building here was completed. But I say all that to say this. All that all the history gone behind this church. Uh, and even in this little booklet, I wanted to read this for you because uh, it gives us some of the names that they were considering. I can find it here. Uh, some of the names that they were considering as a church when they first started off. And uh, I thought, wow, a lot of these were, were pretty, good, pretty good names. And... Uh, um, Let's see here. 
Okay? So the names that the group brought forth, the, the founding members, were this. The Christian Gathering. That was pretty progressive for that time. Emmanuel Baptist Church. Grace Bible Church. Independent Baptist Church. Emmanuel Bible Church. Emmanuel Chapel. Names with Christ were evangel- uh, uh, let's see, Independent Bible Church, uh, Liberty Bible Church, Berean Bible Church, Free Bible Church, Faith Bible Church, Gospel Light Church, Victory Bible Church, Redwood Bible Church, Peninsula Bible Church, and Redwood City Bible Church. Quite a selection there. I'm glad they got Grace Bible Church. That kind of tells us who we are as a church. And the one thing that they founded this church on was clearly the Word of God, upholding the Word of God, teaching through the Word of God. And one of the things that we need to be reminded of, and just a little bit of introduction here and background on our message this morning, you have your notes there. Um, But there was a man named Martin Luther. And he lived from November 10th, 1483 to February 18th, 1546. The Protestant movement as we know it began on October 31st, 1517. And it was started by this obscure Catholic monk named Martin Luther. And he took his 95 thesis and he nailed it to the door of the church, of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. I'm sure he had no idea what his actions were about to do (laughs) throughout history. Um, He hoped to spark debate about the church's practices, um, the Catholic church's practices, that he considered corrupt. And instead, he basically ignited a revolution that the flame still burns bright to this day. Um, From all the way back... There at that church door in Wittenberg, Protestants stand in opposition to error because of all that Martin Luther said and did. And uh, the word itself, um, Protestant, comes from the word protest. They were protesting what the church was teaching its people back then. They had gotten away from the Word of God. They have gotten away from anything biblical, really. And they started to teach errant doctrine. And unfortunately, um, it led them down the wrong path. And so, this morning, we want to begin a... You can mute those drums. <laughs> we got a ghost drummer back there. Unless Ken's Ken's doing it remotely or something, I don't know. Um, But we want to start this series just to kind of give us a little background on our Protestant heritage. And coming out of the Catholic Church myself, being saved out of that when I was 19, it really means a lot to me um, what these men did in the Reformation. And so we have basically five pillars of the Reformation, five solas that they laid out. Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. Solus Christus, which means Christ alone. Sola Gratia means, Gracia means grace alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. 
And then glory of God above all was the fifth one. And this revolution took place because one man decided, you know what, what's going on here is not right. They were taking advantage of the people. They were corrupt financially. They were corrupt when it came to what the word of God said. And basically, unfortunately, it was all about the the mighty dollar. And uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but priests originally were able to marry. They had families. And at a certain point in time in the church, they thought it would be more financially efficient for the church if the priests had nobody to support. And so they... The Pope declared that, you know what, if you want to be a priest, you have to be celibate. And so they put all these children of the priests and their wives out. Put them right out on the street. And they thought, you know what, this will help this person focus more on their calling and all this stuff. But it really had to do with the money of supporting a family. A lot of people don't realize that. And then it was after that, time that the church declared that now you have to call these priests that just disowned their families father <laughs> kind of ironic isn't it so our, our Christianity today is divided into those two segments you have those of the Catholic faith and this isn't meant to beat up on them um, by no means it's meant to enlighten and hopefully shed some light on some of their doctrines, but more importantly, to shed the light on the doctrines that we share in common as fellow believers. And so, when you, when you look at those five solas there, uh, the first one we want to look at, basically, is um, the idea that, that sola scriptura, the idea that the Bible and the Bible only is the basis of our faith. And, and that's really the material principle, you might say, of the Reformation. Because it touches everything else when it comes to our faith. If we don't believe in the Bible, and we don't believe that the Bible's inspired the Word of God, we have nothing to stand on. How can we know the truth about God? When churches can't agree, where do we go? Or when the church is wrong, or the priest is wrong, or the pastor is wrong, how do we know he's wrong? Well, the Reformations came up with this idea of sola scriptura, the the idea that we go to the Bible because it stands supreme above all other books, all other opinions, because it alone is pure and undiluted, the Word of God. And so as we look at this this doctrine, um, I want to read just a segment out of a confession of faith It's called the Belgic Confession of Faith. It says, We believe that the Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. Neither may we consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been or equal value of equal value with those divine Scriptures, nor ought we to consider custom 
or the great multitude or antiquity or succession of times and persons or councils, decrees or statutes as of equal value with the truth of God. Therefore, we reject with all of our hearts whatsoever does not agree with this infallible rule. I mean, that's pretty clear. I mean, the phrase there when it says, of equal value. See, sola scriptura does not mean that we reject church history. It doesn't mean that we reject tradition. It doesn't mean that we reject councils or commentaries or even opinions of of learned scholars. They have great value for the church. And the church should never reject the wisdom passed down from previous generations. However, we believe that those things, as good as they are, can never be of what? Equal value with the Word of God. That's so important to understand. It stands supreme. It's the, someone called it the supreme court of the Christian faith. And it's something that within Christendom today, even within the Protestant churches, people don't understand this as well maybe as they did at one time in the history of the church. A lot of times we rely on tradition or we rely on teachings of someone else. A lot of times we go to a book that somebody wrote and say, well, this is what they say. A lot of times as believers, I hear believers say this all the time. Well, I feel this. I feel that. And there's nothing wrong with your feelings. God gave your emotions, your feelings. But your feelings, and I'll even include in there, or your experiences... Do not come above the Word of God. There's a lot of people that experience a lot of whacked out stuff. Especially in Christianity. I mean, strange stuff. I mean, you have believers barking like dogs and saying it's the Holy Spirit. You have all kinds of weird stuff going on in the church today. And they're experiencing that. But that doesn't mean that that supplants the Word of God, that that takes precedent over the Word of God just because they experienced it. There's a a statement from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy in 1978. And the first part of this had to deal with this sola scriptura. It says this in Article 1, We affirm that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as the authoritative Word of God. We deny that the Scriptures receive their authority from the church. Tradition or any other human source. In other words, the Bible isn't the Bible because we say it's the Bible. The Word of God is the Word of God because it's the Word of God. Whether we believe that or not is really irrelevant. The second article says this, We affirm that the scriptures are the supreme written norm by which God binds the conscience and that the authority of the church is subordinate to that of the scriptures. We deny that church creeds, councils, and declarations have authority greater than or equal to the authority of the Bible. And so when you stop and you think about that, what do we believe about the Bible. Well, we believe basically in three words when it comes to the inspiration of Scripture. We say 
It is the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. If someone asks, what do you believe about the Bible? I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's start with the last word first, inspiration. Inspiration means that the text of Scripture was breathed out by God Himself. And then it was written down by men using their own gifts, their own words, and their own styles. So they weren't robots. That's why when you read through the Gospels, they're all written by different men. So one story may be told a little different than another. Why? Well, it's simple. Matthew was a tax collector. He was a financial guy. Luke was a doctor. Okay, he had different forms of makeup in their personality. If I came to you and asked you to tell me a story and you told me a story and then I went to somebody else with a totally different personality tell me the same story, they'd probably tell them a little different. The story would be the same, but it would be told a little different. And so we need to be, I think, reminded of the fact that God's Word is God's Word, that we don't need to apologize for that. It sounds closed-minded, it sounds narrow, but I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we don't just have an open field to play in when it comes to theology, just to go do whatever we want to do, or teach whatever we want to teach. See, that's the problem with so many churches today, is they've taken this book and they've laid it aside, and they said, you know, that's old school, we're not going to teach the Bible, we're going to teach, you know, more practical stuff. How to have a better marriage, how to help with your finances. We're going to help people with counseling and all these kind of things. And all those things may be good things to know. But if you don't believe that as you teach through the Word of God, you're going to be covering those subjects because either this book is sufficient for our Christian life or it's not. And if it's not, then we better go figure out what else we should teach from. And that's really what the church has done. I mean, it amazes me what churches are teaching on Sunday mornings. I mean, I don't get out a lot, but I go on a lot of websites. And sometimes it's just they're teaching somebody's book that they wrote. I mean, literally, the whole book, the whole church is buying these books, and they're literally going through it chapter by chapter, almost like it's Scripture. Now, the book itself is not maybe a bad book, but you can see the danger in taking one man's opinion of the Word of God and teaching that versus actually going to the text of Scripture and seeing what the Word of God has to say about any one subject. So, be patient with me, but I just want to introduce this subject today. But I want to look at a couple Scriptures now because that's exactly what we want to do. I don't want to just get up here and bloviate on the Word of God and why we think it's the Word of God. Let's look at what the Word of God says about the Word of God. Amen? So look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And you can go through Psalm 119 all day long about the Word of God. But we don't have time to do that. So I just picked out basically one verse here out of Psalm 119. And look at verse 89. You should have the references there, I think, in your, in your outline somewhere. So Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word, look at, is firmly fixed. Where? In the heavens. In the heavens. It stands firm in the heavens. It, that, that means it's unshakable. 
that it's eternal, that it doesn't change, it isn't subject to our interpretation. That's the other thing that people misunderstand quite a bit when you explain a certain scripture to them. They'll say, well, that's your interpretation. No, that's not my interpretation. The proper hermeneutic is to understand that there's only one interpretation of scripture, of any scripture. There may be many applications, but there's only one interpretation. Well, what is that interpretation? The interpretation of what the, the writer, when he wrote it, intended it to mean. Well, how do you find that out? You've got to go to the context. You've got to read before. You've got to read after. You've got to figure out who's writing it, when they're writing it, what's going on. We've got to stop this willy-nilly playing games with the Word of God and just opening it up and say, okay, what's this say? That's not how you study. That's not how you read the Bible. Because why? Because it is eternal and it stands fixed in the heavens for all eternity. Turn over to Psalm 138, just a couple pages to your right. And you can go through the Psalms and find verse after verse after verse. We just don't have time this morning to cover all of them. Psalm 138, look at verse... Let's start in verse 1. He says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. Little G. I bow down before your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast Uh, love and your faithfulness for you have exalted above all things look at what God has exalted above all things beloved what does he say you have exalted what your name and what your word so I think as a church we need to be all about understanding that first of all this is the word of God and secondly we need to be all about studying the word of God Because God says, I put that above everything else. It's my name and my word, and that's it. And that's a good way to start the new year. Where does God's name, where does God's word fit in your life? Where does it fit in your priorities? Are you doing things just for your name, for your sake? Or are you willing to give up your name and your plan and your purpose and say, you know what, God, it's not about me, it's about you. I'm going to honor you above all else come 2017. And I'm going to make time to study your word because you put a priority on it. Over in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 24, our Lord himself speaks so highly of the word of God. Being his own word. He says in Matthew 24, verse 35. He says, heaven and earth will pass away. Makes that statement. Tell that to the green crowd. Heaven and earth will pass away. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen because we're abusing the environment. It's just going to happen. One day, God is going to yield control back to the environment and just say, you know what, I'm going to let go. Christ himself is holding everything together right now. That's why things aren't just flying apart. That's why matter holds together. One day, Jesus Christ is going to say, you know what, now's the time, bye. 
and you, everything's just going to blow up. And so he says that it will pass away. Not maybe, not possibly, not only if you, you know, don't cut down the trees and drive electric cars, then, you know, it's not going to happen. No, it's going to pass away. And not only is heaven and earth going to pass away, but please understand, we're all going to pass away one day. I mean, these were the flowers that were here earlier. I guess they they passed away. But they were here because Al Swanson, long-time member of our church, 97, he passed away. But he knew the Lord. He was ready to go. He's in a lot better shape than we are now. He's home with his Lord and Savior. And I, and I just say that because sometimes we think that we're above all that. We forget that heaven and earth will pass away. We forget that we one day will pass away. One day we'll be put in a casket or however means you're going to be buried, whatever. People will say a couple nice words and they'll get on with their life. That's what's going to happen. We don't like to think of that day, but that day will come, pending the Lord's return. But look at the contrast here. In Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus says, all that's going to happen, but you know what? But, (laughs) my words will what? Will never pass away. They will never pass away. Total contrast to everything going on around us. Total contrast to everything that holds our attention day in and day out. Total contrast to everything that pushes us to prioritize everything above the church, everything above the Word of God, everything above glorifying God's name with our lives. That's all going to pass away. But God says, my words, Jesus says, my words will never, ever pass away. They're eternal. I mean, if you knew that somehow, you know, your car that needed four new tires, you're going to go down and spend $400 to put brand new tires on, Tomorrow afternoon, if somehow you could have a premonition or somehow you could see the future and you knew that next Friday your car was going to be totally demolished in an accident, you were going to be fine, but the car is going to be totally, I mean, it's going to catch on, it's just going to burn up. Would you still go tomorrow and buy four new tires for that car that you knew was going to be gone in less than a week? You wouldn't do it. Nobody would. That wouldn't make any sense. And yet so many times, that's how we live our lives, beloved. We forget that, you know what? Everything around us is passing away. But this book, the words of this scriptures will never, ever pass away. Think about that the next time that you pick up the best-selling Christian book instead of the Bible. Because you know what? That book's going to burn up. (laughs) 
I'm not saying they're not good. It's not good to read. It's great to use other resources. But you know what? If the other resources take precedent over your time with God and His Word that will never pass away, you got a little bit of a problem. Well, John chapter 10, verse 35 says this. John chapter 10. John 10, verse 35. And these are all, notice these are all from the Lord here. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and what? And scripture cannot be broken. The scriptures cannot be broken. The scriptures will be right Every day of the week. Man's opinion will be wrong. Church tradition will be wrong. Your feelings will be wrong. Your experiences will be wrong. But the word of God, the scriptures, it says, cannot be broken. And it's so important that we realize that. This is, this is Jesus Christ saying this of the word of God. That it cannot be broken. Over in John 17, John also says, in verse 17, he just gets done saying that the disciples, they're they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world, all this. And in verse 17, he says, sanctify them or make them holy, set them apart in what? In truth. I mean, hopefully you understand what that means. It means to be set apart... In what is right, not in what is wrong. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to be set apart in error, right? You, that, that wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, you know, I, I'm just going to make a really diligent effort this year to just be wrong most of the time. That's my goal. You'd say, you're nuts. You've lost your mind. Why would anybody want something like that? But he says here in verse 17, sanctify them or set them apart, who believers, the disciples, in the truth. Well, the truth is relative, right? Who's to say what the truth is, Jesus? Well, he answered the question that they were asking. Your word is what? Your word is truth. This is truth. And it's funny how the church and even theologians today debate on, well, is this part true? Is it... Look, either it means what it says or it doesn't. It's not rocket science. And this is what confuses me sometimes with, with people, well-meaning people. I think they maybe study too much or something. You know, I read a verse and I'll say, well, that's pretty simple to me. It kind of says what it says. And then they go on and bloviate about, well, this word, and they say all this stuff. And they talk in terms that they have to explain to you. You know, I hate that when people do that. They'll they'll answer your question, and they'll say a certain word, and they'll say, well, by that I mean this. (laughs) You know, some big, you know, big word, and then they got to explain the word. I say, you know what, just put the cookies on the bottom shelf. I'm just a simple guy. Just, just you know, you don't have to tell me the big word. Just tell me what the big word means. I'm good with that. You don't, you're not going to impress me. 
This is kind of silly sometimes. But Jesus says here, your word is truth. What does that mean? That means it's not error. That means it's not error. It's true. If you knew something was totally true and never erroneous, wouldn't you make that resource a priority in your life? I mean, if, if you were in the investment community and somebody wrote a book and said, you know what, if you just follow this book, you will make billions of dollars in the stock market. Just do what it says. It's truth. People pick up the book. They do what it says. They make billions of dollars. You see the track record. I mean, why would you say, well, you know, I'm going to go figure it out my own way. Why would you do that? That would be silly. You would say, no, if that really works, I'm going to use that. And the lives in this room today are testimony, beloved, that this book works, that Christ works. You don't need anything else. That Christ, His Word, is totally sufficient to make you who God wants you to be. You don't need to go search the Christian bookshelves for some other book. Just put into practice what the Word of God simply tells us to do. If, as a church, we could just do that in the most basic level as individuals, I think that our church couldn't even contain the blessings that would come down from heaven as a result. Why? Because His Word is true. And then turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.16. We probably have all memorized this verse. We know it. We looked at the Gospels. We looked at the Old Testament. We looked at now the writings of Paul to Timothy, young pastor. And he wants them to understand the importance of the Word of God. Um, look all the way back at verse 10. He just gets done kind of talking about the, the godlessness in the last days. And down to... Verse, look at verse 7. This kind of talks about a lot of people even within the church today always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It says verse 9 of, of Janus and Jambres who oppose Moses. They're not going to get very far because their folly is going to be made plain to all. And then he says this, contrast, you, Timothy, however, you have what? Have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Use that in your evangelism presentation the next time you give it. You want to come to Christ? You want to give up your life? You want to follow Jesus Christ? Well, we'll get ready because you're going to be persecuted. To some degree, you're going to be persecuted. That's what it says. 
And some Christians say, well, I'm not really being persecuted. Then maybe you don't meet the terms of that verse. Because notice what that verse says. All who desire to what? Live a worldly life? Live a godly life. If you're going to live a godly life in a worldly world, you're going to be persecuted, beloved, to some degree. Verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. There's no revival coming here, beloved. It's going to get worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned. Continue in what have, you have firmly believed. Knowing from whom you learned it. Verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The holy writings. The writings of God. Which are able, look, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You don't need a track. Not that tracks are bad. But you don't need a track to share the gospel with someone. Take them to the word of God. Why don't we do that? This is the only true book we have. Take them to the word of God. Allow God's word to penetrate their hearts and their minds. And watch it make them wise for salvation. And then verse 16, finally, the verse that we wanted to read in the first part. All scripture is breathed out by God. It has its origin with God. It's not a book that some man, men sat down one day and said, Hey, let's write a religious book. And we'll write this book by over 70 different authors over, you know, thousands of years. And, and then we'll put it all together. We'll call it the Bible. Wouldn't, wouldn't happen that way. It didn't happen that way. God breathed out His Word. And because it came from God, verse 16 says... <coughs> That it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. <coughs> that the man of God may be competent. What's that word mean, competent? Able to handle yourself. It's embarrassing when people are not competent. So I watched the New Year's Eve things last night. Saw a very famous singer crash and burn. Literally. Felt sorry for this poor gal. We don't want to do that. That the man of God or the woman of God may be competent. Equipped for every good work. In other words, it's, <coughs> it's the word of God that's going to equip you for everything in life. If it's good. 
Footnote, you shouldn't be equipping yourself for bad stuff. Okay, that would not be a good idea, especially as a believer. You want to be competent, you want to be equipped for good works. <coughs> so when you stop and you think about what these verses mean, that the Word of God is far and above all else, That it's in Scripture and Scripture alone that we put our trust. There in your outline, you have seven crucial implications. What does this mean in practical terms? Quickly. First of all, the Bible is the objective Word of God. By objective, I simply mean that the Bible is in itself the Word of God. Without regard to how people feel about it or believe it or receive it, it's irrelevant. The Bible is the Word of God whether you read it or not. The Bible is the Word of God whether you believe it or not. See, the Bible is the Word of God even if you obey it or not. And that's why we don't have to argue with people and prove the Bible to be true. That's like arguing whether or not a a knife you're holding in your hand is sharp. I mean, why argue? Just stick the guy with it. He'll figure out it's pretty sharp. See, people don't have to believe the Bible in order for it to work in their hearts. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Just give them the truth of the Word of God and let the sword of the Spirit do the work. The Bible is the objective word of God. Secondly, the Bible is the supreme revelation of God's truth. There's no other book that's compared with it. The Bible stands alone among the great religious texts of history. Above all else. Thirdly, the Bible's message of salvation is plain enough so that anyone can understand it. You don't have to make salvation difficult. The reformers called this a perspicuity of Scripture. They meant that while there are many things in the Bible that remain obscure, even sometimes to the greatest scholars, God has made the way of salvation very plain so that the least to the greatest can understand it. Fourth implication here is no creed or counsel or word from any pope or priest or pastor nor any private prophecy or supposed word from God, nor any vision or dream or modern day revelation can overturn, add to, or subtract from the truth of the Bible. The Bible is the only reliable and infallible expression of God's truth. It's very important because we live in a day and age where everybody's getting prophecies from God. Individuals are claiming experiences here and there. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Fifthly, the Scripture judges the church. The church does not judge the Scripture. And by that we mean that the Scriptures not only give us our message, but they also stand in judgment over us as well, over our methods. We must do God's work 
in God's way, as revealed in the Word of God. And then sixthly, since the Bible is the supreme revelation of God's truth, our supreme duty as Christians is simply this, to know the Bible, to believe the Bible, to preach the Bible, to obey the Bible. We're to be Bible Christians first, last, and always. Hence our name, Grace Bible Church. Seventh, the meekest Christian who stands on the word of the truth of God's word has more wisdom than the so-called wise men of our age. Psalm 119 verse 99 says, I have more insight than all of my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. You want wisdom? Get into the book. Allow God's word to speak to you on a daily basis. Allow the Holy Spirit to use it, to mold you, to fashion you, to make you more into the image of Christ each and every day. Doesn't mean we don't need teachers, we don't need books and other things, but have the Bible as the priority. Kids used to sing in Sunday school class, the the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. I think we need to get back to that as even adults. When you say, I stand alone on the Word of God, you're declaring that scripture from the Reformation, sola scriptura. I mean, the conclusion is simply this, what the Bible says, God says. And the Bible is the supreme court from which there is no appeal. And there's many implications for our Christian faith, whether you're looking at history and tradition or moral issues. When you stop and think of the moral decay in our society, why is that? It's simply because the word of God has been put on the shelf whether it's the sanctity of marriage or the sanctity of life. The Word of God doesn't matter to most people in our society. It's not a debate about sex or gender or orientation. It's not even a debate about domestic partnership. It goes all the way back to the the Garden of Eden. When the question that the serpent asked Eve was simply this, has God indeed spoken? The answer is yes, he has. And as we pointed out, his word lasts for all eternity. Father, we thank you for our time this morning as we begin this new year. And what a a wonderful year it will be if we only put your word and you above all else in our lives. That we can somehow set aside the busyness of our daily lives. And focus on you and you alone. It doesn't mean that we have to stop living. But it's just a matter of priority. It's just a matter of allowing this new year to begin with things in their right priority. And Lord, you say that you'll bless us if we'll put you first in all these things. Put your word first in all these things. So when there's opportunities to study the word of God. As a group or as an individual. Do we set that on the back burner and say, well, i got other things to do? Or do we make it a priority to come together as the body of Christ and long to hear the eternal word of God explained and spoken? 
pondered and read together. Father, this is something that you directed your church to do from the very beginning. And Lord, help us to be faithful to that. Father, we pray for each soul here in this room today. If there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, I pray that they would understand first and foremost that, God, you don't have to prove yourself to anybody. You are the God of all creation. And you're there clearly. And these folks are here today clearly as part of your plan. And Lord, we know that your word says that there's only one way of salvation. And that's through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There's no other mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that all of us have fallen short. We've all sinned. We've all blown it in in some way in this life. And we come up short when we're compared to a holy God, a sinless God. And that's what it takes to get to heaven. Sinlessness, perfection in every way. We can't do that on our own. Because we don't even seek you. There's none righteous. No, not one, the Bible says. And so, Lord, we need your grace. We need your favor, unmerited favor, that comes through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray for each individual here today as they ponder these words, that if they've yet to put their faith or trust in Christ for their salvation, that they would heed the truth of Sola Scriptura, that... There is no other truth. There's no other way. And that they would cry out to you from a broken heart, from a repentful heart, from a humble heart. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. And God, you'll do just that. And for us believers, I pray that you'd send us out of this building today with a new call on our lives to embrace 2017 for everything that it has coming down the pike, no matter what it is, good, bad, Lord, I pray that we would look at it through your eyes, through your truth. That you would build us up, not only as a church, but as individuals. Cause us to long to hear your word. Cause us daily to yearn to spend time with you in prayer. In studying your word. And Father, that we would reap the blessings of heaven as a result. We thank you. We pray you bless our communion time together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.